Turn in your Bibles with me to the Gospel of Mark. Gospel of Mark chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, just slide your hand up. Our ushers would love to bring you one. If you don't have a copy, just raise your hand. They'll bring that to you this morning. If you don't have a Bible at home, take that home to be yours as well. We want you to have God's Word with you. His very special, great, and powerful promises for life and godliness. All right. Well, let's start today with a question for all of you. Uh, Those of us who are claiming to be Bible-believing Christians this morning, those who profess the name of Christ, when you look at your life, are you standing out in the world? Are you standing apart from the world? Are you different than the people that you work with, that you study with, that you're around during your day? Let's just say someone was making a documentary of your life, say it's this the new Netflix crew is coming and they're wanting to, to watch their, to record this movie of the life and times of Dan or, or of Ross or of Kim or of anybody else here. And they had those cameras on and they were catching every moment of your life. Would they see somebody that is different as they're looking at every detail? Would they see you as unique as you live your life as a Christian In this world, do we stand out? How about when it comes to what we we believe? Does what we believe stand out? Is what we believe distinct from the rest of the world? How about all those other faiths that are out there? Think of Hinduism. Think of Buddhism. Think of Islam, Mormonism, Catholicism, Judaism. Are you unique? Are you distinct? Is what you believe different How is it distinct? Or is it just one of many choices? Just one of many possibilities? Just one of many flavors? Many different paths, right? Friends, recent studies are showing us that about, and this is an American study, um, about half of Americans believe that there are many ways to get to heaven. Many ways to get to that eternal goal. Studies also show us that 70% of Americans believe that you have to get there on some kind of effort of your own. You got to do something in order to get there. Studies are also telling us inside the church that the church is beginning to soften as well. The church is beginning to steadily move towards an acceptance of many different paths, believing in a pluralism and universalism, creeping in like a silent cancer, and especially within our younger generations. They're no longer believing that saving faith comes from Christ alone, faith in Jesus Christ alone. Is this what we're supposed to believe? Is this the direction we're supposed to be going as Christians? Is that what the Bible teaches? Is that what Jesus and his disciples displayed while they, are, they were here on this earth? Well, today in chapter 2 of, of Mark's gospel, we're going to witness Jesus and his disciples in action again as we follow Christ along his journey through uh, the gospel of Mark, we're going to see that the way of a true Christ follower does stand out. That we are different. That what we believe is unique and that it is distinct 
and also that the faith is exclusive. The way of Christ is not one of many ways. It's not a choice that best suits your outlook or your occasion. It's the only way, and it's the way that stands out. It's the only authentic way. Nothing more, nothing less. Let's start in verse 18 of chapter 2. Here, I got my Bible open to Ephesians, so I'm going to flip back over to Mark. (laughs) Chapter 2, starting in verse 18. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it. The new from the old and the worst tear, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you again that it is living and powerful. We thank you that all scripture is breathed out by you and that it is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness so that all of us here this morning, all of your people, will be equipped for every good work for your glory. So use your word today as it's always faithful. May your Holy Spirit be driving it deep into our hearts and transforming us. We are about gospel transformation. We want you to change us, Lord. We want you to change us further into the image of your Son that we would be more like him and that we would find our full and everlasting joy in him and him alone. So do that today through your word. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen. So last week we looked at verses 13 to 17. We witnessed Jesus saving and calling one of the, one of the vilest criminals in the town of Capernaum. He saves Levi, and he goes to his tax-collecting booth, and he calls him to follow him. And Levi, just like the fishermen, the four fishermen before him, gets up out of his tax booth and follows Jesus. He leaves that greedy, sinful life behind, and he follows Christ to become a true Christ follower. And in his excitement about his salvation his excitement about his transformation, the first thing he does is what? He holds a celebration. He holds a party in his home, and he invites his old cronies, right? The ones he used to party with and and do all kinds of things with, these tax collectors, criminals, thieves, these unlawful dregs of society. He wants them to meet and to hear the good news of Jesus Christ. He wants them to experience the call, them to feel the transformation. And so last week we learned that the gospel is unconditional and it is impartial. But then we saw self-righteousness rearing its ugly head. We've seen the self-righteous religious police 
They were on Jesus' tail, right? And they began to question why he would eat with such people, why he would celebrate with sinners and tax collectors. And Jesus answers in verse 17, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus boldly called out their self-righteousness, these scribes and these Pharisees, and he was calling us out as well in our own propensity to lean towards self-righteousness. And so last week we've seen Jesus transforming vile sinners into Christ followers. But the religious system wanted nothing to do with it. In fact, they continued to reject the truth. They began to stand their own ground or or kept on standing their own ground and began to scrutinize every move that Jesus and his disciples would make. We're going to see that here again today. They're going to begin to question why Jesus does not fast like the Pharisees, and like John's disciples. And in this, we're going to see the first point is this. The authentic way is entirely unique. The authentic way is entirely unique. So prepare to stand out. Verse 18, John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not Fast. So let's first talk about John's disciples here. Uh, this is the disciples, those serious students of John the Baptist, those who would have believed his message and his message of repentance and forgiveness, those who would have been baptized by him in the wilderness. Uh, but at this time, John was arrested, uh, he was imprisoned. And so, what's going on here is we believe that they may have attached themselves to the Pharisees. Because in those days, at this time, uh, the Pharisees were the ones who were really serious about what they believed. I know that uh, I mentioned them last week a little bit. We're going to dive a little deeper into who these Pharisees were. The Pharisees, they were experts in the law. Uh, Most scholars believe that the Pharisaical system uh, began about a couple hundred years before this time of Jesus Christ. It would have began during the, the Maccabean Revolt in 162 BC. Uh, they were a resilient religious sect within Judaism. Uh, according to the historian uh, Josephus, uh, there was about 6,000 Pharisees, about 1% of the population at this time uh, of Christ. And the name Pharisee means separate ones, means holy ones. This is a real distinctive title uh, based on their strict desire to obey God's word and to live according to the Torah. And so if you were to compare uh, the Pharisees to Sadducees, the Essenes, the Herodians, and the Zealots, the Pharisees were the largest in number and they were the greatest influencers in first century Judaism. And among the Jewish people, they were considered the authority of authorities. When it came to their faith, Matthew records them as being those who sat on Moses' seat. So they revered them as the highest, uh, the highest on that totem pole of Judaism. And actually, when you look at what they believed, and you compare it to all these other different groups, when you look at their doctrine, their doctrine most closely aligned with what Christ taught. It's kind of interesting. Uh, 
They believed in the sovereignty of God. They believed in the accountability of man. They believed in the doctrine of sin. They believed in the future resurrection of the dead. They believed in angels and demons. And they had an extremely high view of Scripture. All things that we would hold to. But where they erred and where they really fell short was that they also held to tradition. Tradition was brought to the same level as the Scriptures. And we're going to see that Jesus has a real problem with this. In fact, Jesus is going to confront them. If, uh, chapter 7, uh, which we're probably going to be studying probably six years from now, chapter 7. <laughs> Not really. Uh, chapter 7, Jesus is going to deal with this head on. And so when you think of the Pharisees, just a little background for you, don't just lump them together as a part of this kind of group that we really don't know about. Um, they were very respected. They were held very high. Uh, they were a disciplined people. They were revered as the holiest of the holy ones who really knew God's word. And so with that in our back pocket, let's go back to verse 18. And we're going to see that the Pharisees were fasting. And John's disciples were fasting because we believe they attached themselves to the Pharisees. Now fasting, let's deal with that. Fasting was a normal and expected practice for the Pharisees. Uh, this fasting that, that Mark is showing us here is different than what we would think uh, normally when it comes to fasting. Uh, Christian fasting today is, is a spiritual discipline. Uh, it's usually a, a personal abstaining from food for a period of time so that you can devote yourself to prayer. It's, we, we would keep from eating food, and, and every time that we feel hungry, then we would devote that time to remind us to spend time with the Lord in prayer. That's what Christians do with that. Christian fasting is never meant to be a sign of outward piety or, or holiness. In fact, it's meant to be something secret. Uh, it's simply a sacrifice of one thing in order to devote yourself to prayer for the Lord. But Pharisaical fasting was different. Pharisaical fasting was more of a religious duty. It was a ritual. It was, it was an outward, public display, a somber, mournful ritual. And the Pharisees, they were known to fast every Monday and every Thursday. These holy ones, uh, they would take something and ratchet it far further than it needed to be. Uh, in fact, if you, when you look at the Old Testament, there was really only one command to fast, and that is one day a year during the Day of Atonement. There'd be a 24-hour fast. There's no more commands in the Old Testament to fast outside of that. But the Pharisees, they ratcheted this practice up a few notches. In fact, they held to four different types of fasting. And one commentator says, fasting had become, in Jesus' day, a prerequisite of religious commitment, a sign of atonement for sin and humiliation and penitence before God. So if you claim to be really serious back then, like John's disciples, then fasting would have been an expected outward marker of your faithfulness. And so as we look at the Gospels here, and we see this new Jesus movement gaining great momentum, and as many people came and heard Jesus' authoritative teaching, he and his disciples were seen as those who were also serious. They were serious about repentance and faith, and then they would have been expected to fast as well. I mean, John's disciples were fasting. 
But to the surprise of the watching world, and especially the watching Pharisees, they weren't fasting. Jesus and his disciples were walking contrary to what was regarded as right. They weren't giving themselves to this ritualistic religious system. They behaved differently. They were unique. They stood out. The authentic way is entirely unique. And so be prepared to stand out. Friends, one thing we need, we need to wrap our heads around as Christians is that we need not be afraid to stand out and to be different. Especially in a world of so many man-made religions, so many belief systems, true Christianity will stand out. We stand apart, and we should, because we're different. We have the gospel truth. As Jesus and his disciples, they weren't fasting like the rest. They looked as though they were forsaking some necessary religious ritual. They were being questioned about their own faithfulness, faithfulness to rules, faithfulness to obligations imposed on them by a man-made system, by religion. Friends, we have to remember that we are not answerable to religion. We are not answerable to man and what he has created. We are answerable to God and what he has clearly written. You see, these Pharisees, they they added law upon law, rule upon rule. They worked extremely hard to look the part, to look as though they were holy in the eyes of the world. They worked so hard to be righteous in their own strength. This is the problem with all of mankind. Apart from God's revelation in his word, you and I and everyone who has ever existed on this planet want to get to heaven by our own efforts. It's the problem that's at the base of every other world religion. That we can please God, that we can reach God by our own efforts, by some kind of ritual, by some kind of ceremony. That we can be good enough to get there. And this is what separates true Bible-believing Christians from the rest of the world. From the rest of the world religions. So as the Jew today still tries to earn God's favor through tradition and ceremony. As the Buddhist tries to reach nirvana through unattaching oneself and following an eightfold path. As the Hindu tries to reach moksha through karma's endless cycle of reincarnation. As the Mormon tries to earn celestial deity through some kind of works and and rituals. As the Catholic tries to earn righteousness through sacraments through tradition, as the Muslim tries to earn Muhammad's favor through five pillars. On our own, we're all striving to do it in our own strength and by our own rules. But true Bible-believing Christianity teaches that man's efforts in the flesh are useless. We can do nothing in our own strength to earn God's favor. No ritual, no ceremony, no rules, no obligations, no religious practice can move our feet one inch towards God. 
Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. Galatians 2.16, yet, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. And this is key, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. It's not by our efforts. So friends, all world religions, apart from Christianity, apart from Bible-believing Christianity, teaches that you can gain eternal reward by doing good things, by good things that you can practice. But Christianity teaches that you aren't good, that you can't get there on your own strength. It's all about what Christ has done, not by what, not by what we can do. And so it stands out. Our faith according to Scripture, stands out. And we will stand out, and we will be questioned. We will. And so as Jesus and his disciples were being questioned and accused of falling short of true faith, Christ goes on to explain why fasting would actually be the most inappropriate thing for his disciples to be doing. Verse 19. And Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. So we already seen that the authentic way is entirely unique. We also are going to see here that the authentic way is joyfully distinct. And we need to believe nothing less. So these Pharisees, they missed the truth that Jesus had been proclaiming up to this point in his life. They witnessed over and over again that, that Jesus was delivering demons. He was healing the sick. He was claiming to be God. They missed that he was the long-awaited Messiah that is found in the treasure of their scriptures that they claim to know so well. They rejected him and they continue to reject him. And instead of believing, what they end up doing is they accuse him. But then he turns the table, and he shows them their fatal flaws. And he answers them by using a parable, a parable of a wedding, to teach them that they have completely missed the point. Now let me ask you guys, before we get into this, if you had to choose... Uh, to go to a funeral or go to a wedding, which one are you going to choose? Wedding, wedding right, of course. Of course, we love weddings. I think most of us love weddings. As a kid, I remember going to so many weddings. We had, we had a really large family on both sides. It seems like we went to three or four weddings every summer. It seems like we were always going to a wedding. And I remember weddings being so much fun. As a kid, we would run around with all of our cousins getting into trouble. And then we would also watch our aunties and uncles as they would get into trouble. <laughs> there was so much joy. There was so much celebration. And family and guests would eat and drink and dance and celebrate late into the night. It was a great big party. In fact, in our own family this past week, 
Uh, Rob and Jackie just celebrated the wedding of their daughter, Emma, and the pictures on Facebook, they're all smiling. They're all having an awesome time at the wedding. And if we think that we know how to celebrate weddings, you should see how the Jews used to celebrate weddings. They took celebration to the extreme. The typical Jewish wedding at this time would last up to seven days. Uh, even, Even the Jewish rabbis... Uh, would cease from teaching so that they could join the celebration. So it was a time of singing, a time of dancing and feasting in each other's homes and in the streets. Food and wine was overflowing. And so it was a time to indulge. It was a time to live it up. It was a time to celebrate the bride and the bridegroom. It definitely was not a time to not eat. It was not a time to abstain. It was not a time to fast. And that's why Jesus says, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. So anybody at that time reading these words or hearing this teaching or hearing this parable in Jewish culture, they would know this. They would understand this deeply, that fasting would be the furthest thing from somebody's mind if they were at a wedding. It would be completely out of the question. They cannot fast. And then Jesus drives this point home because he refers to himself as the bridegroom. And then he also refers to his disciples as the guests, all wrapped up in this parable. And he says in verse 20, the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them. And then they will fast in that day. So throughout the Old Testament, God is referred to as the husband of Israel. A couple examples for you, Isaiah 62, verses 3 to 5. You shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. You shall no more be termed forsaken, and your land no more be termed desolate. But you shall be called, my delight is in her, and your land married. For the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Hosea 2, verses 19 to 20. And I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. We also know in the New Testament, it's further revealed that Christ is the bridegroom. Ephesians 5, verses 31 to 32. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. That's marriage. Verse 32, though, this mystery is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So so marriage is a picture of Christ, the bridegroom of the bride, which is the church. Jesus is saying, I am the bridegroom. And that this time, while he is on earth with his disciples, is like a wedding feast. It's time to celebrate. It's an earthly picture of a greater heavenly reality. And as long as he is with his people, there is no time for fasting. There is no time for ceasing from feasting. No time for mourning. But the time is for joyful rejoicing. 
Because it's all about the bridegroom. It's all about Jesus. It's all about being in the presence of God. Being in the presence of God leaves no room for mourning. It is nothing but joy. It's a time pointing to our everlasting celebration with our Savior. These disciples, they were rejoicing in their Savior. And so we as disciples of Christ today, we as Christ followers as well, also rejoice in our Savior. We exist for the bridegroom. We are the bride. He is our everything. He is our joy. He is full and everlasting satisfaction that cannot be equaled here on earth. And so as we uniquely stand out as Christians, we distinctly rejoice in the grace and the glory of Jesus Christ alone. Just think about the name Christian. The Christ, the anointed one, that is his title, and his title defines us. We are found in him. He is ours. We are his forever. And that's why churches like ours, we call ourselves Christ-centered, Christocentric. Everything is about him. Romans 11.36, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. And so the authentic way is joyfully distinct. And we need to believe nothing less. The word of one of my, words of one of my favorite hymns is, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus Christ, my righteousness, I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. It's all about him. So is that how you feel towards your Savior? That you are at a wedding feast for the bridegroom. Is he everything to you? Is he the reason that you live and you move? Are we forever grateful for what he has done? Are we in joyful anticipation for what he is yet to do? There's nothing greater than this. Nothing greater than knowing that we are the bride of Christ and that he loves us so completely, so sacrificially. Is there anything else in this world that deserves our full affection and adoration? Christians ought to be the most joy-filled people. Those who are marked by glorious joy. In the workplace, in the home, in the school, in the neighborhood. Are you boasting in the grace and goodness of our eternal bridegroom? Or are we boasting in what we can do? Are we boasting in our own flesh, in our own works, in our own wisdom? Are we boasting in what we have? Are we boasting in what we can accomplish? I love how Jeremiah shows us, gives us some insight here. Jeremiah 9, 23 to 24. Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. 
Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boasts in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. That's what we need to boast in. We need to boast in our bridegroom. Jesus is the everlasting answer to your ever-longing heart. He is the only way to fulfill the satisfaction that you have been created for. You have been designed to be fully satisfied in Him and in Him alone. He's the only one. And so we are Christocentric. We are all about Christ. We are all about the bridegroom, joyfully so. And then he says in verse 20, the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. As Jesus is speaking here, he's, he's alluding to the days to come. As we're studying the Gospel of Mark, the first half is about his life and his ministry, and then the last part is, is about his death, his death for us. He will be taken away from them. Then they will fast on that day. As he dies on the cross for the sins of the world, he is taken away from his people for those moments. He will die. And then it's time for his disciples to mourn and fast. And we see that after, after he died, you see, you see the disciples mourning. The fishermen go back to fishing. They don't know what to do. But Jesus says, while I am with my disciples, now it is time for feasting. And so we see that the authentic way is joyfully distinct. And we need to believe nothing less than Jesus Christ. And then he even hammers the point even further. He's got two more parables up his sleeve. New cloth, verse old garments, new wine, and old wineskins. The authentic way is absolutely exclusive. We need to bring nothing more. Verse 21, no one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it. The new from the old and the worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. So here we see Jesus boldly confronting self-righteousness again. The self-righteousness of this pharisaical system. They were holding on to, to faith based on their works faith based on their self-righteousness. And they were missing the point that true righteousness has come in Jesus and in Jesus alone. But worse than that, they were trying to impose their man-made system on him. They were trying to integrate Jesus into their system. They missed the whole point. They missed this absolute need of Jesus Christ. And in turn, what they were doing is it's like they were sowing a piece of brand new, 
unshrunk cloth onto an old holy garment. They were trying to, to patch up what was old with what, what was new, trying to integrate the new with the old. And if you've ever done that, it doesn't work. It's incompatible. The next time you wash a garment, uh, the, it's going to shrink and pull apart. It's going to tear, and the garment will be even more useless than it originally was. The same thing goes with wineskins. Old, old wineskins are wore out. They are dry. They've lost their elasticity. And when you put new wine in wineskins, that wine has a process of fermenting. And those old wineskins are too dry. They, they, they cannot move and they will end up bursting apart. And it is worse than it was before. And so Jesus is showing that this questioning from the people, this questioning from the Pharisees and the scribes is useless. Trying to integrate him into their system is useless because Jesus is new. He is, he is not just a new patch. He is not just new wine. He's not just an attachment to the system. You can't just mesh them together. He is new. He has come. He is the new covenant in his blood. You can't integrate him into the system. He is the good news. In his blood, there will be the new covenant. Remember when you look at the Old Testament, the old points to the new. The New Testament is the Old Testament fulfilled in Jesus Christ. It is, it is the greater way. It is the new way. It is the only way. He is the fulfillment of it all. And he is the only plan for salvation. And his plan is incompatible with self-righteousness. It's incompatible with works-based religion. It's incompatible with any other religious system or, or belief system. It's the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. The faith that proclaims one way and only one way. Acts 4.12, there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. The faith that Jesus is proclaiming is a faith that cannot be earned. He cannot merely be applied to your already awesome life, your already awesome plan. He's not just a patch. You can't synergize him with the faiths of the world. There is only one way, and his way is the new and only way. And it's not by works of righteousness. It's by him and by him alone. And so the authentic way is absolutely exclusive. It leaves no room for anything else. And the world hates that. The world hates that. But it's our job to go and share that, that there is one way, and it is a way of grace. It is a way of love and mercy, and that we have the news. And as we walk through the book of Mark, I hope you're hearing over and over again that this is just, a, this is just not a book for us to absorb for ourselves. This is not a treasure to, to keep hidden. 
This is not a lamp to hide under a basket. What we're learning needs to motivate our feet. This one-way gospel is the truth for the whole world. There is not multiple ways. There is one way, and we have that treasure to share. So the authentic way is absolutely exclusive, and we need to bring nothing more. We can't earn it, and they can't earn it. We have to share it. It's not one of many ways. It's not a way based on my own flavor. In fact, it's not a way at all. It is the way. It is the way. It's exclusive. There is one God. There is one way. It's through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And so we bring nothing more to the table. We, we bring no fasting to the table to earn any kind of righteousness. No amount of law-keeping, no amount of self, no amount of practices can, can replace the way of the true way. Even though we're prone to kind of go in that direction at times. Even in our faith. We're prone, we're prone to look at our life sometimes and to think that uh, when I fall, I need to work my way back. That's not the way the gospel works. When you fall, you turn around in repentance and faith, and Christ picks you up, and he keeps on going with full and lasting forgiveness. You cannot earn God's favor. His arms are always open to you when you fall. And so we try not to. We definitely do not simply integrate Jesus into the worldly forms of worship. We can't just add him to our list of rules. He replaces the rules. He is our rule. And so Jesus is not an addition. If you look to Jesus as just an addition to your already great plans, it will be worse for you. You need all of him. And he wants all of you every day. And so we bring nothing more. Another old hymn not the labor of my hands can fulfill the law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save, and thou alone. And I love this. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. That is the eternal truth. We sang about it a lot this morning. Not my righteousness, his righteousness. Not my grace, his grace, grace alone. The authentic way is entirely unique. We need to prepare to stand out. The authentic way is joyfully distinct. We need to believe nothing less. The authentic way is absolutely exclusive and we bring nothing more. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the reminder of your grace. Such amazing grace. We don't deserve it. Father, we, we are born sinners. We have inherited the sin nature from our parents, Adam and Eve. And we continue to sin in this world. But Lord, we thank you that you made the way. You made the only way through Jesus Christ. 
And Lord, we thank you for reminding us today that the righteousness is not earned by self. Righteousness is not earned by fasting. It's not earned by observing some man-made religion, some ritual. Righteousness is actually not ours at all. It, it comes from Jesus Christ and from him alone. We thank you that as your son walked this earth, he lived sinlessly. And at the cross when he died, he traded his righteousness for our sin. He took the penalty that we deserve upon himself. And he gave us and declared us justified, clean, pure, forgiven, righteous. Lord, may we rejoice in that today. May we be the most joyful people on our neighbor, in our neighborhoods, in our homes, at our workplaces, where we study, where we go to school, wherever we're at. May we be the ones who are full of joy. And may that joy spill out of us into action, action by words, sharing the good news of Christ wherever we go. We can only do this as we are motivated by grace, as we are convicted by God's word, and as we are empowered by your spirit. So do that in us today, we pray.